0: Good morning, church. I am so glad to be here. I'm excited to be here. So glad that we never went out and got a haircut yesterday. Um, Really just, in all seriousness, well, you know, guys like us want to go get, we want to have barbershop moments too, I'm just saying. Um, It's definitely a privilege and an honor to be here, and um, it's very humbling. So let me just lift up a, a, a word of prayer to the Lord as we start. Oh God of the heavens, we come before you and declare that you are God. And God, we ask this morning that your presence would be especially known in this place, that your Holy Spirit would move, and that really, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher this morning. May your word transform us. And Lord, even though I am imperfect, Despite me, let your word be perfect and take deep root within everyone here. So now, Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to start off today's message with uh, something that we used to do decades ago that was pretty popular and say, uh, God is good. Right, You know what to say. But if, if we're going to do it, it's got to be with some emphasis. It's got to be with some ump, because if we don't, it's just, right, crash and burn. So, you know, and, you know, we're making a statement, God is good. Don't we want to say that with, with panache, right? So can you do that with me? Right. right, let's do that. Ready? God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. God is good. And all the time. God is good. That is such a profound statement if you think about it. It makes us stop and ask the question Is God good all the time? Is God good all the time? And this question makes us assess the substance of our faith. Where is our faith this morning? That's the question I'd like to ask. Where is our faith this morning? Have you ever been in a circumstance that makes you question your faith? Has life ever gotten so hard for you that it makes you question your faith? Whether it be something huge or something small. Just this last couple of weeks, uh, two weeks ago, my daughter Naomi, she came down with the flu. She woke up in the morning. It was Martin Luther King, MLK holiday. She woke up. She's like, Daddy, I'm not feeling so well. Let's take your temperature. It was 99. I'm like, come on, right? By 10 o'clock, it was 100, by 12 o'clock, it was 101. By the time we got to the evening, it was 104. And I'm like, oh, okay, 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 okay. Like, you know, you're sick. You're definitely sick. And so we, we came together that night uh, to pray and said, Lord, would you heal us? And my daughter, she prayed that prayer God, we invite you in to, to take this illness away. Two more days passed by, and she's miserable. She's miserable. And you know what it's like? Some of us have the experience of knowing what it's like to watch your child sick, to see them miserable, and there's not very much you can do about it. And it's miserable for me. It's miserable for her. And at the, end of the, at the end of the third day, she came in tears. She said, Mommy, Daddy, we prayed. Why is God not answering? See, even at a young age like that, we're already faced with circumstances that make us question our faith. And there are things, and there are many more things in our life that's going to make us question our faith. Some of us have dealt with, or are dealing with, or will deal with cancer. Or some of us will go through a life-threatening illness, and we will pray. And let me just say right now, I hate cancer. Cancer is one of those things, of all the illnesses, it's one of the things that really drives me nuts, and I hate it. It's been too much in our family, too much in friends and family around us, and it's one of those things that I just love. And it makes me question. Or what about a chronic illness? Do you have a chronic pain that you have that you have to deal with day in and day out? I know what it's like. I've had two spine surgeries. And every day when you walk and it hurts, and there's, you know, the thing is people can't see it. You're just in pain. And so they expect you to just bear it. Nobody wants to hear our complaining, right? But that chronic pain is there day in and day out. And chronic pain is like no other. But you sit quietly in your pain. Or maybe that pain is loneliness. Maybe you sit in a dark room alone, wondering who's going to be with you. Maybe you're struggling with singleness, and, and, and you haven't found the one. And it's getting so bad that you're getting to the point where you actually start to believe, even though you shouldn't, that you're unlovable. Unlovable. There are many circumstances, these are just but a few, that that we can face in life and test our faith. There are so many more. Addiction, marital strife, financial difficulty, sexual abuse. Sadly, these are all a regular part of our vocabulary these days. And all of these are very real struggles that make us question life and therefore God. And you know what? Habakkuk struggles too. Habakkuk asks asks these same questions and has struggles in his faith. And Habakkuk grows in his faith. And through the book that he he provided us through through God's word, he gives us a roadmap as to how we can grow in our faith. As we've been going through the sermon series in Habakkuk, we're almost at the end of the sermon series. We've got one more week next week. But chapters one and two in the past few weeks were about Habakkuk's interaction with God. Habakkuk's charge against God, saying, God... This, this circumstance is horrible. There's injustice all over the place. Where are you? God answers. And then Habakkuk says, whoa, whoa, whoa. God talks back to God. or Habakkuk talks back to God and says, wait, wait, wait. I don't like that answer. And God answers again. And then we get to chapter 3. And that's where we open to this morning. And this is really special because the whole chapter uh, of chapter 3 is a psalm. You can tell. Like, if you've been in church for a while and you've been reading the psalms, you look at it and you're like, this feels like a psalm, right? If you look at the beginning, there's something called a superscription, right? At the top, in verse 1, it says, hey, a prayer of Habakkuk on the Shigionoth, whatever that is. It's a funny word, the Shiggy whatever, okay? But at the bottom, it says, for the choir master on stringed instruments. Does that sound familiar? Or the real kicker is the word selah, right? Nobody knows, actually knows for sure what selah means. Let me just say, I've researched it, we've gone through it, don't know what it means, right? But what we do know is that it's only used in the book of Psalms and here in Habakkuk. That tells us and gives us all the clues that this is a psalm and it's special that it's a psalm because in the first two chapters that was a that was an interaction even though it was meant to be public later on initially that was a private conversation between habakkuk and god once it becomes a psalm in chapter three psalms were commun- this was a community psalm it was meant to be read aloud and sung together in the congregation. So, this, my friends, is the application, is the outworking of chapters one and two. So, it's a very, very special chapter. Will you turn with me to Habakkuk chapter three as we dive into this special psalm? It's a short book. It's easy to miss. It's in the minor prophets. You want to go Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. If you went to Zephaniah and Haggai, Malachi, you've gone too far. Or if you've got a Pew Bible in front of you, page 786. Full-service church here. (laughs) Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. And he starts this psalm by saying, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy in wrath remember mercy now this section of the psalm was probably meant to be a chorus for the congregation to sing together like if you looked at the original it's tightly knit together there is this uh rhythm that it has and it actually goes in the midst of the years revive it in the midst of the years make it known that rhythm that comes to the english actually is there in the hebrew which is kind of cool and the three lines in the midst in the midst in wrath that's all also the same word in the hebrew which is really cool and so as a congregation they were saying hey Let's do this, Lord. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. So the question is, what is it that Habakkuk, and therefore us, asking God to revive? What is it that he's asking God to make known? It's your work. It's your work. In the midst of the years, I've heard your work. Revive it. What's that work? Well, actually, that word for work in the original language, it's a a less common word for the word work. Does that make sense? It's a less common word for the word work and so it, it sticks out. And it sticks out even more because that word is also in chapter 1. right? In chapter 1 verse 5 in chapter 1 verse 5 it actually talks about it has that same word work. And in verse 5 verses 1 through 4 Habakkuk is making his complaint his charge against God and he's saying God where are you? And 1 5 starts the response of God. And one five says, look among the nations. God says, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work. Whose work is it? I am doing a work. God's work in your days. In fact, it actually says, I'm I'm working a work with the same word over and over again. So that really clues us in. Hey, is there something about this work? So what work is is verse 5 leading us off to? Habakkuk makes this charge, and then what does verse 5 start to talk about? He says, guess what? I'm bringing the Chaldeans, or sorry, the Chaldeans, AKA, otherwise known as the Babylonians. And I am going to bring exile to Israel. Wait a second. Let's connect that together just a little bit. If I'm getting this right, Habakkuk is saying, All right, I've heard you. I heard what you're going to do. You're going to use the Babylonians to punish us. And then he says, In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years making known. He's saying, all right, God. Do it. Do it. Bring it on. How does this prophet go from a place of questioning who God is and questioning God's character and saying, will you not hear? Will you not save? Why do you either look at the wrong and come to a place where he says, now bring it on? Habakkuk is growing in his faith. So then how do we grow in our faith. How does this growth in faith happen? And he's giving us a roadmap to say, this is how you can go in your faith. Believe it or not, it's verses three to fifteen. Believe it or not, it's chapter three, verses three to fifteen and beyond, is what helped us grow in our faith. Wait a second, what? Isn't that the passage that Jonathan just read? You mean where the God is angry and full of wrath? How is that picture of God going to increase my faith? Yes, I know it's a tough passage to read, and, and in effect, it's not just the imagery that's super hard, but the whole thing is, is really super hard. Uh, a couple of months ago, Jeff Lilly, one of our pastors, on, our shepherds on staff, made this statement as he started to preach. He goes, you know, I think, I think Darren takes all the nice passages and the fun passages of the book, right, and preaches them, and then he gives the hard ones to everybody else. Let me just echo that statement. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the hardest passages I've ever read and one of the hardest I've ever translated to. It's nuts. It does things in the Hebrew that I would not expect. In fact, one commentator says this. This poem is one of the most difficult in the Old Testament due to the prevalence of unique grammatical forms, archaic language, highly stylized poetry, succinctness, and cosmic symbolism that is for many get this shrouded in mystery each of these features makes the poem foreboding and challenging dang <laughs> one more guy one more says this I, the difficulty of the prayer of habakkuk is universally known universally known <laughs> is universally recognized Almost every word constitutes a problem. (laughs) Just want to say thank you. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. This passage, and then as I started getting into it, I'm like, okay. What I've realized, it's so hard. One of the reasons it's so hard is because it is so beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful ones I've ever read. It was hard for me to get through, but it's got tight, highly coordinated stanzas. The syllables match perfectly. The number of syllables there. Remember, this was supposed to be set to music, right? And they've got these perfect, each stanza has the same number of syllables all the way throughout. He, Habakkuk throws in $5 words, that rare words that he throws in, right? I mean, this guy knows his vocabulary. He studied for the SAT for sure, right? <laughs> There's, it's got alliteration, it's got rhythm, it's got meter, it's got it all. Let me just say Habakkuk was a br- brilliant musician and artist and theologian. So the best posture at any, time we ha- at any time that we have before God's word is humility, but especially when we have a text like this. Let's not come with preconceived notions or prejudge it. Let's not say, I don't like this passage because God is angry, and I don't like that picture of God, before we give the passage a chance to teach us something. Amen? You know, when I first got into this, I was like, man, I, I, why did I get this passage? And then I realized, it's so rich. It's so full so much so that I, I wish I could just go through every single piece of it, but I can't. We have the Super Bowl looming. <laughs> so we have to ask the question, why is this passage here? And in order to understand why this passage is exactly here, you have to understand the form of the book. There's a certain way that this book is laid out, and this book is actually called a, is a lament. And there's a particular, particular shape, particular ingredients that happen to make a lament. All the lament psalms... All the men's solemns follow more or less this type of shape. And so the reason this passage is here is because the shape demands it. The form demands it. And, and, and so much, uh, these, 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 uh, ingredients are so common that, uh, we've actually been able to just list it and give you a list of what Im- is involved in a lament. Let me go over that just for two minutes here. Okay. So to help us to understand. In fact, uh, the mnemonic that we have to help you remember is act dap. Oh, that's inspired, right there, isn't it? Act, dap, A C T D A P, A C T D A P. A stands for address. Simply means this is the person. There's a there's a time in the Psalm that says addresses who it's talking to. Okay, in this case, it's talking to God. But you know what? I don't want you to miss something. If you don't, if you don't, if you didn't know this already, when you have all caps, when Lord is in all caps, that's not actually translating. The concept of Lord or Master. It's actually translating the name of God, Yahweh. This psalm is specific. This psalm is to Yahweh. It's not to anybody else. It's not just some random title that you can assign as Lord and Master. It doesn't go to Allah. It doesn't go to the teachings of Buddha. It doesn't go to the the religion, uh, to the Mormons, to the Mormon God. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of our Bible. It's Yahweh. And who you pray to matters. Who you pray to to matters. The second part, the C stands for complaint. Complaint. And again, this is not where you get to whine like you, you know, on Yelp where you you read something and you, you know, you ate something in a restaurant. You're leaving a review. And and I hate that word. Meh. People put meh. M-E-H. Meh. Like, what does that mean? And who are you to write that? This isn't where we get to whine. This is where a plaintiff brings a complaint to court. Okay? I've got a charge. There are various kinds of complaints, and in this particular instance, is talking about injustice, but other ones, other psalms talk about loneliness. Don't have to turn there, but uh, Psalm 142 says, look to the right and see, there is no one who takes notice of me. Wow. No refuge remains to me. Back in the Old Testament, the psalmists struggled the way we did. more than any other type of psalm, 40% of the psalms are laments. They struggle too. So we have the address, which is in chapter one. We have the complaint, which also is in chapter one and two. Right. This is following a pattern. And then there's usually a trust section. A trust always focuses on who God is and what he has done. Who God is and what he has done. And we'll come back to that. Then there is a deliverance plea. And it says, "Hey, you know, I'm complain. I, I have this complaint. It stinks. God, get me out of here!" Or, or, "I trust you, Lord." And then there's actually a statement that says, "God, get me out of here. I don't want to be in this situation anymore." What's amazing about Habakkuk in this lament is there is no deliverance plea. And for me, that's like, "Whoa, whoa wait! Hey, I need my ingredients." How can there not be a deliverance plea? Instead, Habakkuk says, "Bring it." Bring it. That, my friends, is amazing. And then there's an assurance statement that says, I know that God will do this. And that's actually the bring it on part. In the midst of the years, make it known. In the midst of the years, revive it. That is the assurance. And finally, what we'll wrap up with next week's uh, message is a promise to praise. P stands for praise. That regardless of the circumstance that we're in, I'm going to praise the Lord anyway. So as we zoom in in verses 3 through 15, we get to this section of trust. And so when you think about, like, why, you wonder, like, why is this here? It belongs here in a lament psalm. It's supposed to be here, and it's supposed to focus on God, and it's supposed to focus on what God does and who he is. What God does and who he is. And so what does God do in this psalm? What are some of the things? When we read it, we're like, what is this? Right? But if I start to pick out certain themes that are in this psalm, a certain shape takes place. When, if I say Teman and Paran and Krishan and Midian, they're all in the south, in the Sinai Peninsula. If I say, if we, if we remind you of pestilence and plague, if I remind you of the raging waters that swept on, if we talk about you trampled the waters with your horses in verse 15, what does that remind you of? What's the image remind you of? The Exodus. He's evoking the Exodus. Okay, He's reminding you that it's the Exodus. And for the Israelites, that was, that was the beginning. It's often the Exodus is described in creation-type moments. And what's often missed, actually, is another moment that happens uh, at 40 years after the Exodus. They wander for 40 years, and then they go to the Promised Land. But before they do, God wants to remind them, again, what he's just brought them through as they part of the Red Sea. What does God do as they cross the Jordan? He does a little mini one, right? And they crossed the Jordan, just like they crossed the Red Sea. It was a reminder. And so we see that in verse 8. Easily missed. Was your wrath against the rivers, Yahweh? Was your was your anger against the rivers? So when you pair that with the Exodus, you realize he's talking about the Exodus, talking about the Jordan, and finally one more event in Israel's history, which most of us don't know by name, but you know it. It's Joshua's battle in the Ayalon Valley. Joshua's battle in the Ayalon Valley, we know it because of what happened there. Joshua says in chapter 10, Joshua chapter 12, 12 through 13, verse 12 says, Joshua's talking. <laughs> It'd be cool to be Joshua. Look what, he, look what he says, right? He says, son, stand still. I wish I could get my kids to stand still. <laughs> stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aelon. And the, and, the, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped. Until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. So true to form, what Habakkuk is doing, he's bringing out these events in history to reflect on them. To remember this is what God has done and therefore to define who God is. So the question after what he's done, who is God? What picture is Habakkuk bringing forward to, as to uh, the picture of God as to who God is? And he does he brings us a picture of three things. The creator, the warrior, and the saviour. The creator, the warrior, and the savior. Everything in this passage assumes and depicts Yahweh as the creator. Everything bows and yields and capitulates to God. In verse 6, he says, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Verse 9 says, you split the earth with rivers. Verse 10 says, your mountains saw you and writhed deep gave forth its voice. All of this attests as God is creator and that we are the created. We can dwell on a lot of concepts of God being creator. That's an amazing theme. If God is the creator and that we are the created, that sets a framework for our relationship. What created thing ever went back to the creator and said, I don't know if I like that picture of you. No database programmer programs a database, creates one, and the database program goes back and says, "Yeah, I don't think you were a very good programmer." Doesn't happen. But let's zoom in on one thing, one aspect of the creator that Habakkuk zooms in on. He zooms in back in 3:6. His the eternal mountains, the mountains which are eternal were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His we're the everlasting ways. God is the true eternal one. God is the infinite one. And what was preached a couple of weeks ago, there was this, this statement was made. God is infinite and we are finite. God is infinite and we are finite. And if that's the case, if God is infinite and we are finite, I'm going to do some math here, then there's an infinite gap between God and us. Do you get that? What's infinity... It, If I had a library full of infinite number of red books and an infinite number of blue books, okay? And if I took all the blue books out, how big would that library be? It would still be infinite. In other words, so if we took all of human knowledge, every single one of us and collected it together and said, hey, this is where my knowledge is at, our human knowledge is at, and God is at infinity, it doesn't matter how much you try and eat into God's infinite knowledge, What's the gap between God and us? Infinite. And so that's what Habakkuk is saying here. There is an infinite gap. And we bow. We cower before the everlasting God. And if there's one implication of the fact that God is infinite, if he is infinite, then let me tell you, my friends, there is no such thing as a New Testament God and an Old Testament God. And I think that's something that's been happening in churches nowadays more and more. We want to just focus on the New Testament God. We want to focus on the warm, cuddly God. And the Old Testament God, ooh, no, 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 hey, don't want to do that. But let me tell you this. If God can change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that means if there's growth and change, there's not perfection. And if he wasn't perfect then, he's not perfect now, then he won't be in the future. And that's not a God that I believe in. I believe in a perfect, eternal, unchanging God. Amen? Yeah. So we then just, we're left to sit there and, just, and say, okay, how does this work? The second theme that's all through here is that God is creator and that God is warrior. Now, you can see in the passage, I don't need to go there, that there's plenty of warrior imagery. God's angry. There's chariots, there's arrows, and even talks about killing other warriors. We think that's scary, but let me just say, when we're in battle, which God do you want? Which picture of God do you want? Do you want the warm cuddly fuzzy God or do you want the guy that's dressed for battle? I remember when I was in high school, I played football and I love Fridays. You know why? Cuz I got to wear my jersey. Right? Jersey day. I felt like part of a team. And I'm I I mean I'm small for 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 to play football, right? And and I had class I had math class with two linemen that were on the team. They were huge. Samoan guy, 6'2", 250, 6'4", And we would walk to class and I would stand right in the middle of them. Hold my hand. Hold my hand. Right? Nobody was going to mess with me. There's nobody that was going to mess with me because I've got those two guys. Understand that this is just one picture of God, though. God is a warrior, and we can't forget that. Yes, God is a father. Yes, God is a friend. That's all true. But let me tell you this. No label can fully describe God. Even God is father and friend. That's not enough. It's not enough. Warrior is not enough. No human description, no finite human description, can actually fully describe who God is. And so we can't latch on to one label. We need it all. We need it all. And so why is God the warrior? Why is God the warrior? God is the warrior because he is our savior. God is the creator. God is the warrior. And God is our savior. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Yes, you get that angry, marching God. You march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. But why? Why? You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. You crushed wickedness. Laying him bare from thigh to neck. Why? Because he loves you. Because there's nothing that's going to stop him from coming to you. He chases after us. He breaks down walls. He puts evil in its place to save you and me. To rescue you and me. To take you and me. To bring us home in his presence, and that's the God that I want. When the movie Taking came out with Liam Neeson, you guys know what I'm talking about. All the da- that was like the patron, like saint of all dads, because you know when you have a daughter, the first thing you freak out about, like I wanted to buy a gun as soon as my daughter. Oh, it's a girl. We're buying a gun, right? <laughs> She's not going to get married. She's going to go into a convent. Someone, you better not take my daughter. You better not take my daughter. But if you do. I'm going to be Liam Neeson, I'm going to come after you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills that I have acquired over a very long career, <laughs> skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. That's the guy that you want, right? You want the one that's going to chase after you, right? When life is picking on you, when you're in the battle of your life, when sin is pounding you over the head and walls are caving in on you, God can and will rescue you. Nothing can stop God. Not only is it warrior, but remember, he's the creator. Everything answers to God. So all his power is there for what? To rescue you. We see this in the New Testament too. Even if, even if we don't talk about warrior, right? This concept is in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. It says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. As we think about these themes and this impending judgment that that we're saying, bring it on. As I was reading this passage, there's one more thing that that struck me. Again, the grammar is really tough. One of the hardest passages I've ever translated. And one of the things that made it hard is, I don't wanna get too far into the Hebrew, okay? But in Hebrew, there aren't necessarily verbs that that mean exactly this tense. I know that's weird, okay? But there are some verbs that are reserved for future tense and that are often used as future tense, but can still be used in the past, and some that are usually used in the past tense that are reserved for the future. This one goes all over the place. There's past, present, and future everywhere. And I'm like, and you don't see that in the English translation because they smooth it out talking about the past, right? But what's actually happening here, when I read it, I'm like, is he talking about the Exodus? I thought he was talking about the Exodus, but why are you flip to a f- future tense all of a sudden, right? Why is this talking about the present? Why is this not in the future? I was dumbfounded until it hit me. Is, God talking about the, is Habakkuk talking about the exodus? Is he talking about the impending exile that's going to come on Israel? Is he going to talk about the impending uh, punishment of Babylon for exiling Israel? And the answer is yes. All of the above. Why? It's pitched in this eternal way of speaking because what God does in the past forms an understanding of His identity to us in the present. And that, my friends, that picture of who God is right now, from who he was in the past, is what gives us hope for the future. God is past, present, and future. And so what we're forced to do when we go through a lament psalm, when we have this trust section, we focus on who God is and what he has done. We remember. And you know what? Let me tell you. God tells the Israelites over and over and over again, remember Egypt, remember Egypt. Why do you think he would have that? I mean, this is a monumental thing. Why would he do that? Because we're forgetful beings. We are. Have you ever been in a circumstance where life was so bad? It was so difficult. I mean, even just when we get sick with a little virus. We're like, oh, I'm shaking. My temperature, like it's so bad. Like, you know, some of you probably just went through the flu and going, no, no, it was bad, it was bad. Yeah, it was bad. But afterward, how do you feel? It's like, oh, I forget what I was going through. During the time, we're like, oh, this is so bad. Can you start negotiating with God if I got better today? Lord, I would do this. I'd even, like, sacrifice Christina's left arm. I don't care if she can't play the piano anymore. She's like, we don't need worship. Lord, just get rid of this pain for me, right? And then that passes, and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, it was good. Uh-huh. It wasn't so bad. So what I, as I wrap up this morning, I want to encourage you to build things that help you remember who God is and his faithfulness to you in your life. What has God done in your life? Find a way to say, hey, I'm going to remember this. Some of us might do it through journaling. Okay? You might have a paper journal. right? You might have a paper journal and you might write it in a, I can't do paper. My handwriting really stinks. I can't read. What I've written down ten years later. I can't do it. So I went to uh, an email address saying email Daniel Kim or I think it's journal Daniel Kim. The fact that I can't remember what the email address is tells you something. Okay, <laughs> that I, I'm not a journaler. But hey, it might be for you. Set up set up an email address that's just between you and God, and write down just little moments. It doesn't have to be a long treatise every day. You can just write one thing, right? Or if that's too much for you, there are now we're in modern and modern age. There are journaling apps that are out there that you can use to help you. It'll record where you are at the time that you have the thought. You can speak it in and leave a voice memo, or you could type it. You can take a picture of that sunset that really, really just awed you. You can all do you can do stuff like that and use a journal. But I know some of you are thinking, that's still not me. I don't like that, don't want to do it. That's fine. We got another option for you. Here's one. Build me- mementos, mementos in your life, monuments, okay? So one thing that I did a long time ago is I put a piece of paper on the back of my door. That, and I, and I, I put it in a very cryptic way, um, different symbols and different uh, meanings. But one of the things that was on there, and this was um, all those things represented how God was faithful in our life, in my family's life. My parents came from Korea, immigrated in 1972 with $760 in their pocket. $300 on a car, $300 on rent, bought some food. All they had was rice and soy sauce to eat for two weeks. The symbol that I had on there kind of represented the kind of tough life that my family had gone through. And I had the number three. That number three represented the three times that my mom went through cancer. And I remember when my dad told me? That said, I remember coming I still remember perfectly. My dad brought me into his room and said, Dad, or Daniel, your your mom has cancer again for the third time. I remember going back into my room and, and, and taking a book and just throwing it as hard as I could against the wall. We've already gone through it twice. Why one more? But all that is a testimony to God's faithfulness. Whether she survived or not, let me tell you, if I put that piece of paper on my, wall, on my door today, it would have the number four on it. And in the, in the letters LT for liver transplant. And she's still with us today. But guess what? She's not going to be with us forever. She's not. Nobody lives forever. But God, from times past, from Korea, through cancer, through all different things, God has been faithful. And I needed, think about this, how traumatic are those things in life? I still needed a reminder to put on my door. You can do it in every way. You can put a little rock Right? They put rocks all over the place in the Old Testament. I'm like, I don't know what's the deal with rocks. They wrote on rocks. They put them there. They, they divided things with rock. You can put it on your mantle. You can put a date on it, a number on it, something, anything, just between you and God. Dan Crane's got one of the best ones I've ever heard. We're in the team teaching meetings, and he says, "Oh, this is what I've done." And uh, there is a picture in his house. You don't know which one it is. And he's, I, I said, hey, you know, I'm just going to invite the congregation to come over to your house. And, and, and he said, yeah, yeah, have them all come over. Yes, yes, so come over to Dan Crane's house and try and pick out which picture is that memento for him. That is a picture of when he almost died. That's pretty cool. He's just, there's a picture there. So every time he walks by, he sees that. Build mementos, build things in your life to remember, to remind yourself of who God is and what He's done. And even if that is too hard, feel like, I don't even want to do that. Don't worry about it we got another thing for you okay <laughs> remember how god says uh in the bible over and over to uh, to the israelites remember egypt remember egypt remember egypt he sets up all these festivals the, the the boring part of the old testament that you don't want to read on the seventh day you're going to do this and feast unto the lord you're like Aah. well those are really important right one is the passover feast the passover feast commemorated when god came to egypt and released the israelites how Through wrath and anger. What happened? God was going to wipe out all the firstborn. Except for the people who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And he passed over. That, my friends, is the perfect picture of in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Right? And so we're asked to remember that Passover. Why? Because on that special day. On a night thousands of, uh, hundreds of years later Jesus would come and celebrate what we now call the Lord's Supper. But what was that day? It was the Passover. He came for the Passover feast. And he says, he breaks the bread and he says, do this in remembrance of me. You no longer need to remember Exodus anymore. You no longer need to remember these other things. I am your Passover lamb. And so, will you remind yourself? So like I said, if you don't want to do any of those things, we do communion once a month at church, right? And that's actually why we're having communion today, to take this moment to say, to remind yourself and say, hey, it's not, a t- it's not a cognitive remembrance, all right? It's not something that just say, oh, I remember these things. It's a time that we can dynamically live again and remember. Do you remember what it was like to be in sin? Do you remember what it's like they have the walls coming in on you. Do you remember those times in life where things got tough? Communion is a time for us to remember. Communion is a time for us to go through that history with God once again. Don't forget what it was like to live in bondage. We were in bondage. We were being held captive under the penalty of sin, which is death. We were walking, but we were dead. Do you remember that moment? Or was it like the flu that you forgot? We we're asked to come back into our deep emotions of our soul. And not only that, to remember our history with God. What has God saved you from? What has God rescued you from? How has God showed up as a warrior? But yes, too, as a father as a shepherd all those things will you remember your history with God to remember that who God is remember Jesus himself now bore the wrath so that we could receive mercy so as we wrap up our time today let's take a moment let's take a moment and if you would close your eyes would you review your history with God What has God saved you from? What has God rescued you from? Would you allow the richness of God to come deep in your life? Heavenly Father, We lift up these memories to you. We lift up these memorials, not to just remember ourselves, but we lift up these monuments to remember you. Lord, as we celebrate the Passover, as we celebrate the true Passover in communion and remembering who you are, God, I pray that you would speak deeply in our lives and that through that you would give us hope. That we might move on from our circumstances. We might move on from our hardship. We might move on from our suffering. To you be all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.